0: this is Wayne Zell, host of Blueprint for Wealth, a podcast that's designed to help you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom, and it features special guests and educational moments. Today, my special guest is my dear friend, longtime friend and colleague, David Wexler. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. It's it's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm flattered that you asked. I will show the listeners why I asked you, because you are an expert among other things, in life insurance. And so we're going to talk a lot about life insurance, the life insurance industry, but first a little bit about David. David is an accomplished Renaissance man. So he sings, he plays guitar, but he's also a, uh, a chartered life underwriter. He's been that uh, for many, many years. And he's also a chartered financial consultant and an accredited estate planner. All of those uh, monikers mean that he's really, really familiar with the use of life insurance, not only in terms of business planning, but also estate planning. And he's a principal at Greenberg Wexler and IG, which is an M Financial Group member firm in Bethesda, Maryland. David, what is M Financial?
1: Well, for the lack of a better description, it's, it's a buying consortium. It's a 150 independently owned entrepreneurial financial services firms that are serving the nation's largest businesses and wealthiest families, providing either executive benefits, estate planning strategies, succession strategies. If, if we were an insurance company, we'd probably be amongst the largest insurance companies in the nation as a as a small business, you know, we do a very nice amount of revenue, but as a consortium, we do almost $2 billion of new insurance premium. And what that does is it gives us clout in the marketplace and allows us to negotiate for things that we couldn't negotiate for on our own, including things like underwriting concessions, services, and things that are seamless to our clients, but are very important to us in terms of the delivery of
0: product and services the the life insurance product has been an important component of my practice as an estate planner and a business planner and what i was hoping you could do is give me three important uses of life insurance for entrepreneurs and businesses today what do you see as being the most important uses of life insurance and in business for entrepreneurs.
1: So some of it de- just depends upon how the business is structured and what the long-term succession of the business is. So, for example, if, if we're working with an entrepreneur and they're the sole owner of the business, the question as part of the succession arrangement is what is going to happen to that business? God forbid something happens to you. So there's a lot of planning that can go around with this. But my particular specialty of this is how do you fund the plan? So frequently with single owners of businesses where we're looking to put into a strategy that will design the succession of that business, which will involve keeping key employees engaged, potentially finding a buyer for that business, working out a buyout. Frequently, we will put some amount of key person life insurance in the business where the business is the owner and the beneficiary of that. Now, what we usually engage our, our entrepreneurs to do is to use this catch as a form of something we call the stay bonus. And it, what it will do is, it will give the key employees the incentive to continue to work there and continue to drive the succession of the business, knowing that they now have a stake in doing that. So it really provides an incentive for them to complete the plan that the entrepreneur would have completed had they been there for
0: so that. So that's so that's interesting. So what you're saying, in in terms of uh, you know understandability for the listener. You're saying that the business buys a life insurance policy on the owner, correct? And it's a permanent life insurance policy that generates cash surrender value inside the policy, correct?
1: It could. sort that sort of is in alignment with what the other planning for the business is. So, for example, if you have a, a cycle for the business that's saying we want to build its business up to. Hundred million dollars of revenue, and then we're going to put it in the market. So my risk is only temporary in this because that's part of my plan. Right. Then maybe a temporary policy would work for something like that. However, if I'm dealing with family businesses where there's a likelihood that some child or grandchild, niece, nephew, cousin will succeed in this business, and but the sole owner of the business happens to be at the generation above that. Permanent life insurance probably would make more sense in terms of the delivery of the dollars so that you can incent non-family executives to stay with the next generation so that they have a stake in the business without necessarily giving them ownership in in
0: business. Now, if you have a company-owned life insurance policy and Mm -hmm. you've got a sole owner of the company, isn't Mm -hmm. it true that the insurance proceeds will be included in the owner's estate as part of the value of the company?
1: Well, that that's possible. I mean, it sort of depends upon how you how you structure it. Right. So so for example uh, this is going to go to my sort of next point with this is oftentimes when we're dealing with entrepreneurs there may be multiple stakeholders there may be partners there may be other investors there may be things like that if you you know that if you structure a buy sell arrangement between shareholders or owners of a business in such a way that it obligates the business to buy s the, the stock from the deceitant right that, then that is serving a business purpose and doesn't necessarily inflate the value of the business because there's a liability on the other end of it in order to be able to do that. So it's a, it all depends on the circumstances and the structure. If you structure it correctly, the proceeds won't necessarily inflate the value of the business. And then there's other planning circumstances with that. So for example, let's say your client is married and the business is going to be in their revocable trust, and it would qualify for the unlimited marital deduction. Yes, the value would increase by value of that, but would there be a tax on that? No, because it would qualify for the marital deduction. So the answer to that is it's multifactorial, it's all sort of circumstance driven.
0: All right, so key man insurance is one technique. Give Mm -hmm. me a couple more important techniques for the entrepreneur business owner that they need to have life insurance for.
1: It depends upon how you're crossing over and what you're trying to do. So if you're, if, if you're combining the succession plan with the estate plan right. and the business is a non-liquid asset and you know that there's going to be an estate tax due when they die and that could become burdensome for that. And there isn't a necessarily a logical successor for that. Maybe you want to consider putting life insurance into an irrevocable life insurance trust that would create the liquidity that would preserve this valuable asset, which is generating cash flow for that. And now, under certain circumstances, there might be other techniques you can plan around, but there's nothing like life insurance to provide the cash outside of the taxable state by virtue of the fact that you have created this trust, which is going to hold it, which which might do that. The other thing we see life insurance playing a very valuable asset is we find that entrepreneurs are, are usually make the mistake of giving stock to people that shouldn't own stock. It says <laughs> I like you. I'm going to give you some stock in my company. And then they become minority shareholders. And then they get a voice and a vote and it makes everybody very unhappy. Right. So to the extent that you can create alignment between key employees and owners by not necessarily giving them an interest in the business, but giving them Participation in the upside through some sort of phantom stock arrangement, like either a phantom stock plan, a stock appreciation rights plan, or some sort of bonus arrangement, that can be a very creative technique in order to create that sort of alignment. Because all employees really want, because they're not entrepreneurial, is financial security in exchange for a career commitment. If you're going to create, however, some sort of stock-based plan, synthetic equity, if you will, what you're doing is you're creating this emerging liability on the books of the company. And the question is going to become is, how do you ultimately finance that without selling the business? If you have a long enough runway with this, Life insurance, because if it's unique tax treatment, can be a valuable asset in terms of finding financing that emerging asset. It's another form of key person life insurance, but it's not on the owner. It's on the key employees right. and it creates it. It secures the promise, so to speak. So that's and a very best invest over investment.
0: time. You can have it. A, absolutely. So that they it's really a golden handcuff A way It's really a golden handcuff. The employee incentivized to stay with the business. So those are yes. those are some really good examples. Thank you. I, I would love to hear one creative story about how you used life insurance to save one of your clients millions of dollars. Could do you have anything like that in your quiver? We have had
1: many instances where we have had unfortunate
0: circumstances
1: where we have delivered very, very large checks to people. So that's... So, We had an an entrepreneur who started with a small health insurance company. Ultimately, it got to be a very large health insurance company. Ultimately, it went public, and they participated in all the things we talked about. There was key person insurance. There was deferred compensation arrangements, something like that, Mm -hmm. but the, the, the way we saved millions of dollars for this person is ultimately when the business got sold and they had the value realizing event and now they had an estate tax circumstance, we had put in something called a split dollar arrangement. And under this split dollar arrangement, we created an irrevocable life insurance trust. The business ultimately financed this irrevocable life insurance trust. Ultimately, the, the business was paid back through the value in the policy. The, the person died, and had all of these millions of dollars in place to finance the estate tax, so that they and this the, we did this because the stock it, when it got transferred ultimately was restricted, and so they even though it was a publicly traded event, it was still not a liquid event. So this insurance created the protected the asset. And it was all financed by the company. So it was a small investment on their part that ultimately netted millions of dollars for the family.
0: Great story. That, and that that is a classic use of how life insurance can really provide liquidity to the family to defray the estate tax or minimize the impact of the estate tax on an illiquid asset, an asset that was restricted. It couldn't be sold or transferred. So the next question I have is shifting a little bit we've been seeing a resurgence of something called private placement life insurance, both onshore and offshore. And mm-hmm. I wanted to get your thoughts on when is a private placement life insurance policy, PPLI, when does it make sense and when is it overhyped? Because I know in certain circumstances, people have expe- expectations of using this technique and it may not work out the way they want to.
1: Okay. Well before we get started, let's let's sort of define our terms, because I think this is an important part of understanding the way this works. So with all life insurance contracts, there is an underlying asset which supports the death benefit of the policy. So if you're looking toward a more traditional type of policy, a whole life insurance policy, for example, the underlying assets which support the death benefit are the general account of the life insurance company, which is a highly diversified portfolio. Of bonds and commercial mortgages. Not very sexy, very steady. Life insurance companies are the biggest buyers of bonds in the world. They buy them, they don't trade them, they mature, they reinvest them. It's all very stable. In the 70s, insurance companies developed a new form of insurance where it would give control of the underlying asset and take it away from the insurance company and put it into the hands of the policyholder. These were known as variable life insurance policies, and the underlying assets look very much like a 401k plan. There are these instruments called subaccounts, which look like mutual funds, and now the policy owner has the ability to design the portfolio based on their risk tolerance and how it works. Take it a step further. You can offer a variable life insurance contract that's not registered because variable life insurance is not only a life insurance product, but it's also a registered security. You could take it a step further and offer a non-registered product that has the ability to invest in those same sorts of instruments, but it's only available to qualified purchasers and accredited investors. So you have to be either wealthy or make a lot of money in order to be qualified to even consider the acquisition of this. Now the the magic of private placement contracts and is in addition to these sub-accounts, you can also have these instruments called insurance dedicated funds. And these insurance dedicated funds can be slipped onto the platform and they can basically be invested in any number of things, all kinds of alternative investments. If you can think of something that is sort of crazy with this, you can put it on the platform and you can invest it. Now, there are two kinds of private placement contracts. There are onshore contracts and then there are offshore contracts. Onshore contracts are issued by domestic carriers, Subject to all the sort of laws that insurance contracts are subject to, primarily code section 7702, which defines what life insurance is. And then under private placement, there's another code section called 871, which talks about how you can have the diversification rules you have to have in terms of doing so. You can't like take all of one kind of asset and put it into a private placement contract because it would violate section 871.
0: But these are rules that apply to U.S. insurers, correct? They are,
1: yes, if they apply to U.S. insurers. But with private placement contracts, the question would be, do you want an insurance contract that is U.S. compliant or not U.S. compliant? And if if it is U.S. compliant, then you probably won't have a problem repatriating the funds. If it is not U.S. compliant, what are the penalties that you're going to have to pay to do this. Now, the reason people will want to set up private placement contract is because of the unique income tax treatment of life insurance. So the first thing everybody needs to remember is life insurance death benefits are exempt from income taxes under Section 101. And then if it happened to put it into an irrevocable trust or a dynasty trust or some other form like that, it's also exempt from potentially estate and generation skipping transfer taxes. So the combination of the two can be very tax efficient. But the growth of the value of a private placement contract or a variable contract is tax-deferred. Now, by that, I mean you're never going to pay tax on it if it matures as a death claim. But if you buy the contract and later surrender it, then you have to pay tax on the gain. But the tax is deferred up until that point in time. Right. Right. So now then if you want to get money out of the policy, you can withdraw money to basis first. There's no other asset you can do that with. If you want to get money out of the policy, also tax free, you can take loans on the policy. So they're very efficient tax instruments. And then if you can use these alternative investments and you get this huge amount of growth on that, all of that deferral can be very valuable. And if you happen to have enough success with that, you could possibly grow the death benefit over time. Now, Because of this unique tax treatment, people will sometimes deliberate under the misconception that I could take a highly appreciating asset, like stock in my company, or private equity investments that I have, and wrap it into one of these private placement contracts. And in some cases, you might be able to do that. But before you would consider something like that, it's really important to consider the risks and understand what's going on with the contract. So for example, if you get a U.S. compliant comp- contract and you're doing this offshore, you can do this. Now, the problem working with offshore companies is that their capacity is very small. Usually, they can retain $50,000 of death benefit. So, they're going to have to find additional death benefits somewhere else in order to take this multi-million dollar asset in there, which means they're going to have to have reinsurance treaties with some U.S. company or perhaps a European company. And so, you, it's there are a lot of Pieces that need to go into this in, in order to do this. And wouldn't, and wouldn't they
0: be more inclined to use European or uh, the offshore insurers to reinsure through European insurers rather than in the United States because not, of the constraints on what you can do in the United States?
1: Well, so we, we had a client who was in private equity investments and he did an offshore. Program. And he had the sort of same repatriation issues that a lot of U.S. companies have, which will redefine their site as offshore and defer profits or that and not repatriate them and then reinvest in Europe or Africa where they happen to be doing business. Right. It just so happened that this was a U.S. citizen who was doing private equity deals in China. Um, he set up a Bermuda-based company and put a lot of stock in there and deferred the tax in there. It's stuck there now. I mean, so what did he do? He moved to Bermuda. <laughs> so, that so bad. It, no, I'm, i love bermuda i would go there in a heartbeat but so you know you need really good counsel on this and you need to be very careful about doing it i mean it's it's one of those things if it if it looks too good to be true it might be you, you know if you're going to consider trying to defer the tax on a highly appreciated asset with a very low basis and a private placement insurance contract seems to be the right way. you know make sure that once it gets offshore you can get it back on
0: if you need to get it back on
1: if you need to get it back
0: on because you may not need to you may not um, last last point of topic today and then I'll let you go is uh, you know the uh, the future of the life insurance industry is, Everybody's raised questions, you know, about how long will life insurance get this favored treatment? And as you know, a couple of years ago, the House Ways and Means Committee tried to go after the life insurance industry and every other estate plan. Oh, it's, it's
1: always on somebody's list. So. Oh,
0: it was, it, was, it was almost, you know, it, it seemed like it was going to go away. But then I, I have some good clients who are very involved in the lobbying on that industry, and they said mm-hmm. it'll never go away. And so my question to you is, when people are evaluating life insurance and using it as a technique to minimize estate tax and minimize income tax, is it a viable technique into the foreseeable future? Do you, have you, are, are there any fears among your colleagues that this has been good for so long, but its, it's utility has come to an end, there's an end in sight. What what are, what are you hearing? What do you see in the industry? Uh, you
1: know, it, it's always on somebody's list. And I think it's always on somebody's list because they really don't understand the fundamentals of this. And I'm, I'm going to tell you something which you probably have never thought about, but it's it's one of the reasons why it's highly unlikely that it will ever become an issue. So most people think of insurance having an investment component and a death benefit component, and that if you cash in the policy, that you're going to pay tax. And that growth should be taxed as, as you go. Now, if you go back to the turn of the 20th century, 1910, it used to be that life insurance companies could collect all of this premium. And if somebody quit the policy, they just keep all the value. And so literally the first Consumer Protection Act had to do with the life insurance company. The, because the notion of the policy having a cash value is not because it's an investment. It's because the insurance company by statute is required to set aside a certain amount of money in reserves to pay premiums and pay death claims in the future. So it's a little bit like, amassing an emerging liability and matching it with an asset in order to be able to make sure that when the time comes, that the asset or the liability that you've accrued has an asset that manages it. Right. It just so happens that the cash value of the policy, you know, less whatever insurance company fees are attributed to that, is really the reserves that the insurance company has set aside in order to pay claims in the future. So technically, even though you have access to it, it's really the insurance company's money right? because they're holding it to pay your death claim in the future. It just so happens that if you terminate the contract is when you would realize a gain if the value exceeds your basis. And on the flip side of that, if you terminate the contract and your basis
0: exceeds your value,
1: there's no loss for that.
0: Right. Right. So. I think, in, in terms so of the dual-edged sword, in other words, a, there are gains that would have to be recognized. Um, there are losses that would not be recognized, and there are uh, there are reasons for protecting the, ca- the inside buildup of cash surrender value. Right,
1: because it it really fundamentally mm-hmm. is just an asset of the insurance company. It's not an asset of it's all, It's a contingent asset. I mean, your house is an asset. OK, but you have to live somewhere.
0: Yeah, and right? we don't so own not... the insurance company unless it's a mutual insurance company. Right. So right. we don't we don't have ownership of the of the entity that owns all those assets that back up all those liabilities, which are the need to pay off the insurance at somebody's death.
1: Right. So if you start taxing either the insurance company or the consumer for the, the build up of that value, which is really designed to be a reserve in order to pay future claims, you're putting the viability of the entire system at risk. And when you consider the fact that probably 95% of the insurance that's sold is for the purpose of providing financial security for families, or funding some liability, or protecting the value of a business, or something like that, where the unthinkable happens, then you can see where it makes sense not to tax that, Even and it's it's really a fundamental misunderstanding on the behalf of, of legislatures who are always looking to raise revenue.
0: Well, that was an ex- excellent explanation, and therefore we're going to per, uh, retain this recording and put it out on the internet so that Millions and millions of people understand why it's very important not only to get life insurance, but why it needs to be protected in our system today. So thank you. Excellent, I am so happy about that. (laughs) David Wexler, thank you for being a special guest on Blueprint for Wealth. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's my
1: pleasure. Like I said, I'm very flattered that you asked. I hope this is helpful.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Blueprint for Wealth. And we hope you tune in next time for another special guest and educational moment on Blueprint for Wealth. Have a great week. Hi, this is Wayne Zell, and welcome to Blueprint for Wealth, your videocast featuring special content and special guests designed to help you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom. Blueprint for Wealth is brought to you by Zell Law, A tax, estate planning, and business planning law firm located in Reston, Virginia, serving clients all across the United States. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at zelllaw.com. Today's educational moment is featuring the 10 rules of stock options, and let's get started. The 10 things you need to know about your stock options are the following items. Number one, set goals. What do you wanna do with the proceeds once you exercise your stock options and sell the stock and get money in your pocket? It's a financial planning exercise that you have to go to. Are you gonna use the proceeds for your base savings, for your rainy day fund, for uh, planning for the near future? Are you gonna use them for your legal support obligations? Or are you going to do something special like add on to your home or buy a new one, build a vacation home, or even take a vacation? Do the planning up front, set your goals, and then decide how much of your stock options you should exercise and when. It helps you focus on your specific use of the proceeds from the stock in regards to your other financial planning obligations, income, and savings. Number two, develop a plan. How do you handle your stock options over time? Well, this involves understanding the tax issues relating to stock options, which we'll cover in a second. And also, if you exercise today and you lock in your, 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 your stock appreciation today, have you lost out on gains in the future by exercising now? Develop, developing a good plan helps you focus on your specific use of the stock in relation to your other income and savings, just as I mentioned a second ago. Exercise and sell just enough to meet your goals. There are really two approaches that you could adopt. One is stagger the exercises of the stock options and sales over a period of years to spread out the income tax obligation or hold the options until the last possible moment when you must exercise them in order to best maximize your gains. Number three, you really need to understand how to value your stock options. You need to account for the exercise price, the strike price that you have to pay when you exercise the option. It might be a very low price or it might be very close to what the fair market value of the stock is today. So you have to account for the exercise price and you have to account for the taxes that you're going to pay. Here's an example. Let's say you own a 1,000 options to purchase a 1,000 shares that are worth $100 a share today in the public market. That means that you would have something of value equal to about $100,000, right? But you have an exercise price to pay for the, the stock and if the exercise price is $50 a share then you're really only entitled to get the excess $100,000 minus $50,000 or $50,000. And you've got to pay taxes at a 40% or more rate on the exercise and sale of the stock option. Note that if you have a non-qualified stock option, you automatically are going to have tax withholding of at least 25% taken out of the proceeds. Number four. You could wait to exercise. If the company value is increasing, hold on to the option until you can afford to exercise. Because if you exercise now, remember, you may have to pay the exercise price and the income taxes to the federal government, depending on the kind of option you have. If you have an incentive stock option, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, the alternative minimum tax may kick in on the exercise of your option. If you have a non-qualified stock option, then you're going to be subject to regular income tax on the exercise of your option for the difference between the fair market value on the date of exercise and your exercise price. Typically, most stock option plans give you 10 years from the date of grant to exercise your options. But if you exercise and hold the option, exercise the option and hold the shares and hold for at least a year, You can get long-term capital gains treatment on the resale of the stock. That's a 20% difference in income tax rates between long-term capital gains rates and ordinary income rates, at least under current law. Number five, when you need to ignore rule number four. Don't wait too long if it doesn't meet your goals. Also, if you If all of your net worth is tied up in your stock options, you may need to diversify your holdings to reduce your risk. If, say, 25% or more of your net worth is concentrated in your stock options and you have the ability to exercise and sell them, then you may want to do so, again, to diversify your portfolio, diversify your holdings, reduce your risk. But you can't just do it at any time if you're involved in a public company because you may be subject to restrictions on trading that apply to insider trading. If you have inside information relating to the company, you may be restricted from selling the shares while you possess that inside information and the public does not. Number six, what happens if you leave the company? Well, make sure you read your stock option plan and your award agreement carefully. Know your rights If you're fired, with or without cause, or you quit, you voluntarily resign from employment. Usually, you'll have between 90 and maybe as long as 180 days to exercise your option. If there's a death of the option holder, they may have as long as 12 months to exercise the option. And disability has its own rules under your plan, under the award agreement. What if you go to work for a competitor? Well, if you go to work for a competitor, many stock option plans may say that you automatically lose the right to exercise your option. They disappear with no benefit to you whatsoever. The bottom line is make sure your family is aware that you have these stock options, where the agreement is, and where the plan is so that they can take action if something uh, unfortunate happens to you. Number six. Learn about the alternative minimum tax if you own an incentive stock option. An incentive stock option is a special kind of option that's issued by publicly traded and some privately held companies that get preferable tax treatment. When you exercise an incentive stock option, you do not have to pay regular income tax on the exercise. Unlike a non-qualified stock option where you do have to pay regular income tax on the exercise equal to the difference between the fair market value on the date of exercise and the strike price or the exercise price. In an ISO, you may have alternative minimum taxable income. It's treated as a tax preference item on the exercise of the ISO. Even though it's not subject to regular income tax, it's a trap for the unwary. And if you exercise your ISO, you may owe alternative minimum tax if it kicks you into that realm the spread between the fair market value and the a and the exercise price is known as an amt preference item and it could subject you to tax at rates up to 28% meaning that a paper gain could be taxed so be careful number 8 focus on vesting rules and dividends If the options allow you to immediately exercise them, even though you're not vested, meaning that you have to work for some period of time or you have to hit some performance targets to earn the option, you could exercise them today and lock in the low exercise price, particularly if the company is increasing in value. And then you would be required in order to lock in that lower basis for the shares that you are exercising. Uh, you would have to file an 83B election. That's referring to code section 83B of the Internal Revenue Code. It has to be filed within 30 days of receiving the stock option grant. If it's not, it's not a valid election, and there's really no way out from making a, a late election for a section 83B election. But it locks in your tax basis and your holding period so that when you vest later on, you're not subject to tax again. And when you sell the shares, you can get long-term capital gains rates if you've held the shares for at least a year and you're vested. You can exercise and hold the shares if the company pays dividends. Again, that's another reason to exercise early because you may be entitled to receive dividends even though you're not vested in the shares. Take a look at your plan and your option agreement. And last, get good advice from your advisors. Find out how often the advisor deals with stock options before you entrust this valuable asset to them to help you make your financial planning and tax planning decisions and get references from clients. If you want to know more about stock options, visit us on the web at ZellLaw.com or give us a call at 571-203-9355, 571 203 Z E L L. We'll be happy to schedule an appointment with you to talk to you about your specific issues. I'm Wayne Zell, and thank you for joining us for Blueprint for Wealth.